The Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietley. This episode of the Powercast is brought to you by Audible.com. Download a free audiobook of your choice today at audiblepodcast.com slash Powercast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash Powercast. And now, on with the show. Dr. Richard Haynes is the chief scientist of NARCAP, which is a National Aviation Reporting Center on Anomalous Phenomena. Dr. Haynes, thanks for joining us on the Powercast. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, I guess one of the things that we wanted to ask you about here is the fact that, of course, when we talk of anomalous objects, we use the common term UFO. You refer to it as Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, or UAP, and is there a reason why you prefer to do it that way? Yes, there is a very important reason, um, and it has to do with the intellectual and emotional baggage that's been attached to the initials UFO for uh, at least a generation, if not longer, where um, people around the world now are very familiar with this idea of UFO, and most of them have committed themselves to some hypothesis uh, what it is. I, on the other hand, and I think some of my colleagues, uh, particularly in NARCAP, have not come to any conclusion. We want to leave the door open, let the evidence speak for itself, and we do not want to use a pejorative term like UFO. So since we as an organization rub shoulders and interact with aviation professionals of all levels, by the way, private and uh, governmental and commercial and so forth, uh, we lose credibility immediately in their eyes if we are associated uh, as a UFO group. And we are not a UFO group. We are a UAP group. UAP simply leaving that door open to plural phenomena. Uh, we don't know what the phenomenon is. It may be singular. It may be plural. It may be a, a host of things. So that's a long-winded answer to your, your good question. Well, of course, I can see also where... By doing it this way, you're not pigeonholing it as an object specifically. Yes. Which yes. could be very important because some of these things may know. not find. That's where it goes. Now, as far as the organization NARCAP, and you've been around, what, about 10 years now? Roughly, huh? Yeah. How did this organization get started, and who makes up this organization? Well, uh, NARCAP was established back in about uh, the year 2000 by a small group in Silicon Valley where I used to live. I have since moved. A friend of mine, Ted Rowe, and I got together one day, and we were talking about what can we do to make a difference in this field and to bring more science to, to bear on the subject. And we discussed uh, the strategy of trying to address a practical need within our culture. Uh, and this is before 9-11. Uh, terrorism was not nearly what the uh, concern is now. But we realized that aviation safety is of concern to a lot of people. And so we said, well, all right, um, I, we know that there are many documented cases in the literature and from my own research, by the way, where pilots have reported very strange things going on outside the airplane at altitude, 
cruise speed, cruise altitude, and so forth, where aviation safety was apparently impacted. Uh, let's see if we can put an organization together that would systematically look at those kinds of cases and what kind of conclusions, scientific results, can we obtain from that database. That's how we got started. Now, how far back in history do you actually go in terms of accumulating sightings? From the point where we first started having manned flight? Yes. Before NARCAP, uh, for about almost 40 years now, I have been specializing on pilot cases. And so my own personal files I called AirCat for Air Catalog, and these consist uh, of thousands of, of reports from around the world going back to the pretty much the beginning of aviation. My I would think my earliest cases in the 1920s, uh, open cockpit days and so forth, going right up to the present, by the way. And so based upon that database, as your listeners can find out if they're interested uh, on our website, I have collected uh, somewhat over 100 cases from these thousands and thousands that I have where safety seems to be impacted by the nearby uh, proximity of some phenomena, one or more phenomena. Now, when we talk about safety, we're talking about mechanical function of the aircraft. We're talking about navigation systems, engines. What specifically? We deliberately classify or categorize our reports into one of three sections, let's call them. One section has to do with electromagnetic interference uh, on board the airplane, or conversely, down on the ground on the airport, uh, where aviation safety includes the ground facilities, obviously. Mm -hmm. So if, let's say, power goes out unexpectedly at an airport, which it does, by the way, from time to time, and the electrical generators, the emergencies have to come on, that's an emergency uh, EM kind of an effect. There's a wide range of EM effects in the cockpit, which I won't go into right now. The second type of case we're concerned about is what I would call a breakdown in cockpit discipline where the phenomenon is so captivating near the airplane that the pilots, the crew, are pretty much focused on it and they kind of uh, aren't as quite as attentive to flying the airplane as they should. Okay. Mm -hmm. Third and final category has to do with in-flight upset, we call them upset, where passengers and crew are actually physically injured, perhaps because of turbulence. Uh, or perhaps because of a, an abrupt control maneuver that the uh, crew might make to avoid a collision, a perceived collision, I should say, not a real one necessarily. Uh, and in some cases, uh, we have documented instances of, of stewardesses, for instance, taken to hospital after the flight lands because of something like this happened. So there's your three categories of concern. Going through some of the documentation online that I see you've written, there are some specific reports that you've done involving categorization of the types of things that pilots have seen. One of the things that I found very interesting was that most of the effects on the plane systems are related to electrical activity, but there seems to be, and I just want you to, to corroborate this, there seems to be no instances of any types of interactions that have negatively or in any dangerous way affected the hydraulics on airplanes. Is that correct? That's a very good observation. I, I would agree with that. Uh, at least cases that we know of. Now, there may be other cases that are not publicized at all, you know, that mm -hmm. are buried in maintenance records, uh, mm -hmm. which we don't have access to. But you're right. The hydraulic system does not seem to be affected. 
It seems to be far more in the very high frequencies, uh, in the magnetic domain, you know, that dimension that science tells us is orthogonal or 90 degrees to the electro electrical domain. So the, the kinds of problems that airplanes have encountered have really then centered upon things like effects on engines. Uh, there was one particular uh, case that uh, I think you referenced where a plane landed and it was found that all of its spark plugs had essentially fused, that the, that the engine had effectively locked up during flight. Now, that makes sense in terms of, of, of a prop plane. Do we see different types of effects based on the type of propulsion system the plane has? Uh, so in, in terms of, again, the research work you've done, have, have there been episodes where, for example, a prop plane's engine is seized up and, the, and that plane has completely lost the ability to fly and has uh, subsequently crashed? I seem to recall one case, an Air Force uh, propeller plane, I think two-engine, uh, years and years ago, a long, long time ago, that essentially crashed. But that many years ago, I think it's fair to say that the investigative forensic wasn't quite up to what it is today. Mm -hmm. And if the Air Force, I'm sure it did an accident investigation, but I do not know what they found. So I really can't answer whether or not the pistons froze, to use your words, you know. It may have been something totally different. There can be fuel starvation. It can be icing. It can be all kinds of other things that bring the plane down. Right. So to say that they, it froze is, I think it's a little bit jumping to the point, uh, jumping okay. to conclusions. But let me go back to a question you asked earlier, uh, because I didn't uh, fully answer it, having to do with the staffing of NARCAP. Okay? Please. We have an executive advisory board consisting of uh, six people, and uh, we then have what's called the National Technical Specialist Team, and these are aviation professionals, a lot of retired pilots, air traffic controllers, meteorologists, and so forth, that provide technical assistance more at a, uh, I would say, a strategic level, if you will, a long-term planning level. We have a another group of approximately 20 folks from around the world that we call international technical specialists, and they represent... Each one of them represents a separate country. So we now have about 20 countries. Uh, and what do they do? If an American airplane, a registered airplane, happens to be flying over, let's say, France or England or Brazil or whatever, Australia, and the pilots, the crew, should see something that they uh, report as truly anomalous, then we have a representative in that foreign country that can run some interference for us in the sense of perhaps obtaining meteorological records from the government, applying for radar data if it's available, talking to air traffic controllers, uh, getting newspaper clippings, interviewing other pilots uh, from that country that may have seen it themselves, and so forth. But NARCAP is a U.S. organization. We are only concerned about American airplanes uh, wherever they might be flying, by the way, around the world, but American registered airplanes. I think that's important. Uh, that we're not an international group who are trying to take over the world. Uh, we've got plenty on our plate right here. We have a, a fourth and final group uh, of approximately 35 volunteers uh, who we call research associates, and these are also professionals who have volunteered to spend some of their time in doing research projects for us and 
as a chief scientist for this organization, it's my responsibility to direct that program of research. So I would assign, uh, ask for a volunteer, for instance, to do a review. I'll just, may, I'll just tell you one that we've done in the past, a review of uh, electronic personal devices, cell phones uh, by passengers on board airplanes. Okay? There, the concern, of course, is electromagnetic effects uh, radiating from those uh, PDAs, let's call them, personal digital assistants, to the airframe itself. You understand? Mm-hmm. So uh, we've asked our RAs to do quite a wide range of reviews. Uh, one of them we've recently published on our website, www.narcap.org, in case anybody's interested. If they will go to the technical reports section there, report number 11 has just been added, written by one of our RAs, uh, who is a pilot, and he did a, a review of unmanned aerial vehicles. And so he's done a pretty nice review there of the size, shape, flight dynamics, um, and so forth of that particular class of vehicle. Hey, neighbors. As we said, this episode of the PowerCast is being brought to you by Audible.com, and you can download a free audiobook of your choice. And you can select from over 40,000 audiobooks and lots, lots more featuring bestsellers about the paranormal, about UFOs, novels. You pick it, and when you get the book that you want, just download to your Apple iPod or over 400 other devices. All right? You can download your free audiobook today, today at audiblepodcast.com slash PowerCast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash PowerCast. This offer only good for USA listeners. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely, enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with an opportunity to stretch out and talk. We are talking to Dr. Richard Haynes. He's chief scientist for NARCAP, the National Aviation Reporting Center for Anomalous Phenomena. We're looking here at this report you just mentioned, which is called A Review of Unmanned Aerial Vehicle Designs and Operational Characteristics. That's the right one, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Can you maybe summarize for our listeners precisely the focus of this particular paper? Yes. Uh, that paper, the, the motive for preparing that paper was simply to provide our interested friends uh, around the world with information they might be able to use in a practical way when they're out researching cases uh, to eliminate this class of, of vehicle, which is a man-made but unmanned aerial vehicle that now come in a very wide range of shapes, sizes, flight dynamics, and so forth. Uh, we're just trying to chip away at the prosaic explanations that the skeptics come up with uh, and uh, various close-minded people to try to get to the bottom of this as scientifically as we can. Now, the other question would be, of course, secret weapons development. Obviously, you don't want to get involved in what our secret weapons might be, but you might be facing a situation there where there is a secret unmanned weapon or aircraft that is spotted. So obviously, you would have to separate that from unidentified aerial phenomena. So do you have to contact people in the military to find out, hey, can you let us know? If this was maybe could have been one of yours, we'll just wipe it off the picture, wipe it off the research. 
Yes and no. I, I think it's not as cut and dried as that. Every case is individual, of course, and, and requires a different approach uh, from a research point of view. To be very frank, I have not had much cooperation from the military, and I don't want to elaborate much on that, but it's, that's a true statement. I've got to tell you that. So basically then, when you look into something like, for example, the O'Hare case, the report that was done, which actually I'm honored to have been cited in the thanks of, based yeah. on some of the photographic research that I had done on some of the images that had come forward from that. Um, yes, and we appreciate that input very much, David. Well, uh, anything uh, that I can do, Dr. Haynes, to, to assist uh, in, in a serious matter, uh, you know, in terms of serious research. Obviously, the Paracast is something that people listen to, uh, hopefully, to learn about things, not just to be entertained. Anybody who listens to the show knows that my own personal interest in this is very serious. And in fact, serious in, uh, enough where I, I take it personally when people treat this topic as uh, nothing but entertainment. As someone who has a bigger vested interest in it, I'm, I'm really interested in trying to cut through the noise to achieve uh, some sort of understanding of the signal, because clearly there is some signal here. In something like the O'Hare case, uh, essentially you have to assume that you won't get any assistance from the military, even in terms of any kind of recognition that, oh yeah, that there's no need for you guys to look at that. You're not told that by any portion of the military, something like, for example, the O'Hare case, where it's clear that there was some sort of, I don't want to use the term cover-up, but United Airlines apparently went to great lengths to discredit any discussion of this, which some of us found to be a little unusual. I mean, what are your thoughts about that, Dr. Haynes? Well, you've, you've expressed your opinion very clearly. I will say that I have done all I can to employ the Freedom of Information Act provisions mm -hmm. following the letter of the law, and I have been sadly disappointed at the response I've gotten uh, using that legal approach when it comes to the U.S. military. I have, on the other hand, uh, been remarkably encouraged by the response I've gotten from our FAA, and I'm very glad to be able to say that. But particularly since 9-11 happened, for some reason, I do not understand, uh, the military seems to be non-responsive. Mm. And as I said in the O'Hare report, which you may remember reading, I filed an FOIA request regarding an Air Force base near O'Hare, mm. I believe in Illinois, and they didn't have the courtesy to respond at all. Hmm. Wouldn't you think also, Dr. Haynes, that because of the issues with regard to 9-11 and that sensitivity that people ought to be given maybe more information about things like this? Oh, yes and no. Um, I'm old enough to remember World War II, and there were events uh, related to propaganda, use of propaganda, both inside and outside our country, uh, that were clearly justified after the fact. And during the, while it was happening, of course, we didn't know about it. But after the fact, we saw that there was justification for it. So using that kind of reasoning today with 9-11, for instance, I can certainly understand why some of our agencies are doing apparently what they're doing. Does that make sense? Actually, yes. <laughs> Without okay. going into it, yeah. Uh, well, 
there are a lot of things that are sensitive, and of course, we live in an environment where people feel entitled to know whatever they want to know. Mm-hmm. And, and sadly, yeah. the realities of the world are a little more complex than that. Let's get back to this topic in a moment. You mentioned that you've been doing independent research into pilot sightings for decades now. What got you originally interested in this topic? Well, uh, it was back in the 60s, actually, when I was gainfully employed and doing uh, simulator research for NASA down in California. And one of my jobs would be to um, work with commercial pilots who would uh, volunteer to come to our research center and fly our flight simulators on research that we scientists were designing and carrying out, uh, having to do with flight safety and improving cockpits and all kinds of things, TCAS and avionics and so forth. And from time to time, a pilot would volunteer to me an experience he or he had that just blew me away. And I wasn't particularly interested in the subject, but I'd heard about, quote, UFOs at that time. And I'd read a couple little things on it, but I wasn't committed to it at all. It wasn't particularly a hobby or an interest at that time. Mm-hmm. But the more of these stories that came in from these very credible witnesses began to catch my my attention, and I said to myself, gee, I can explain these things. They're all natural phenomenon. They're all misidentified phenomena within the human eye, for instance, which I'd done quite a bit of research on, uh, optics and so forth. And so I set out as a skeptic to disprove the whole thing. And the more I looked into the subject seriously, not just the peripheral, you know, the humor factor, the more convinced I became that there was something there, that something deserved to be looked at, but none of my colleagues were looking at it, and I found that hardly anybody else was either. And I said, well, okay, if I'm going to specialize, I might just as well take pilots as, and air traffic controllers as, as my database, and I started collecting reports. That's a long time ago. And organizing them in some rational faction uh, approach and uh, trying to develop a a format layout that would be amenable to computers since there weren't computers back then but I knew they were coming and so laid out the data form in such a way that the data could be dropped into computers someday and over the years I've managed to collect as I say over 3,000 of them now. Let's qualify that for just a moment um, because certainly there's some of our more technically minded listeners that might say wait there were computers well, there were mainframe computers. There were large computer systems, centralized computer systems. What we didn't have at that time were personal computers. Right. Let's just lay that out for people so that they have a clear understanding of that. What you were doing was basically tabulating information in a way that you knew would be easy to essentially do a later database entry of an organization of. That's correct. I suppose also it was very hard to get time on those mainframes. But I wanted to ask you here, in collecting all this information, were you able to set percentages of how many cases are due to different causes? Before you even look at possible unknowns, how many are misidentified aircraft, planets, oh, stars, sure. etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? Yes, of course. Uh, that's the first stage one goes through here. Uh, you try to eliminate as many as you can. And so I guess what I'm suggesting is that a great, great, great majority of these over 3,000 cases are UAP. They're not prosaic. They're not meteorites or birds or balloons or, you know, all the other things that people like to, to suggest that after a good deal of study, they remain unidentified. 
Now, Dr. Haynes, as we look at, in the 20th century, the history of UFO, UFO UAP, anomalous aerial uh, phenomena sightings, and you'll have to forgive us because we are part of that world that is heavily indoctrinated into the terminology uh, as it exists now, so um, it's hard for us for this episode to necessarily just completely disconnect our cognitive systems, though I know Gene is going to try to do that. David has suggested that my cognitive systems were disconnected so long ago from consuming too many substances in the 60s that I'm completely uh-huh. shot at this point. I've never brought that up even on this show with you, so I don't know what you're, I don't know what you're talking about. It's Seriously. implicit. But um, either, either you guys are losing a lot of listeners right now or you're gaining a lot of them. <laughs> I've kind of figured that we're half of one half of the other. <laughs> there you go. Right. It all balances out in the end. As we look at the reports, uh, certainly during the 20th century, there seem to be certain types of changes in the morphology of the craft, where in the Second World War we hear about things like the Foo Fighters, these balls of light. Then during the 50s and the 60s, there was a predominance of disc craft. In more recent years, there has been more and more talk of triangular craft. Do you see a similar type of reality in terms of uh, pilot sightings? Is there a certain type of trend of change of morphology of the craft, or is it looser than that? Well, let me generalize by saying that what people on the ground are describing, and by people on the ground I mean reliable, uh, not drunk, not, you know, inebriated witnesses, uh, Mm -hmm. not people on drugs. What they are reporting uh, with decent detail is pretty much what the pilots are reporting. But the phenomenon is occurring at all altitudes, let's put it that way. Okay. So it's occurring at all altitudes, but in terms of the morphology of the craft, I mean, do we still see a large number of reports, for example, of these balls of light that seem to be predominant back in the 1940s? Is that still occurring? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I would say that if you take all of the shapes that have been reported, and I've, I've actually written a chapter in Ron Story's UFO Encyclopedia years ago mm-hmm. on that very subject of UFO shapes, uh, if you take a listing of all those shape names, the name that comes to be the most consistent over the, the, the what, 50, 60, 70 years now is a sphere, a ball. Mm-hmm. So, so that is fairly consistent over the years. Extremely what, so. Are there clues in that for you personally? Yes, I, I think there is. I've investigated a number of very interesting pacing cases, meaning that the phenomenon comes up beside the airplane and then stays alongside for a half hour or two hours or whatever. I mean, a long time. Mm-hmm. That is very significant. But the reason being that if you look at the aerodynamics, the lift and drag characteristics of a sphere, as opposed to a wing section or whatever, that a sphere has as much lift as it has uh, lift up in the vertical dimension, assuming the sphere is traveling horizontally now relative to gravity. The sphere has as much lift pulling it up as it does down because of the the equal radius of the curve that makes up the sphere, right? (laughs) So that the differential is gravity. In other words, the density of the object, which is equivalent or let's call it weight, the weight of the object, the mass of the object, uh, is being influenced by the pull of gravity. 
and it must eventually come down, except there's got to be another upward force to counteract it. Otherwise, it can't fly parallel with the airplane for a half hour, hmm. for an hour. You see the point? So yep. spheres turn out to be a very important data point here. It would also, from what you're saying, present more of an obstacle to keeping it aloft. Maybe it's not the best shape for aircraft. Hey, neighbors, the easiest online meeting service, GoToMeeting, just got easier. If you haven't tried GoToMeeting, now's the time, because the new version of GoToMeeting has fully integrated voice over IP. With this new total audio feature, you have more audio options by being able to conference through a phone or the web, save time, save money, and be more efficient. Hold an online meeting with GoToMeeting. Try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. Visit GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We are talking to Dr. Richard Haynes, chief scientist for NARCAP, and we're focusing on a scientific, responsible approach to understanding unidentified aerial phenomena. So, Dr. Haynes, does that also raise a lot of flags as to what these things might be? The fact that if you're choosing the ideal shape for an aircraft, the sphere wouldn't be it. Given our state of understanding of physics, uh, aerophysics, and so forth, I would have to agree with that statement. Uh, it is is not a. It's a high drag, uh, has a lot of, of funnel area and so forth. But science is not mature yet. Uh, our physics has not uh, reached perfection. And so, just because we can't do it or we think it's not the best shape, doesn't mean it isn't. It just means that we don't understand how to gain another upward force, if you will, to counteract it. You see, in the case of a sphere. Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense. All right. Let's talk about a shape that we heard referenced quite a bit a number of years ago, maybe less so now, which is the large cigar shape. And usually when we hear about the cigar shape, it's in the context of a large craft. Listeners of the show know that um, one of my primary UAP experiences has, has been seeing one of these large cigar craft, monstrously large, larger than anything I've ever seen in terms of any kind of a single object besides maybe a skyscraper. What does that shape suggest to you, Dr. Haynes? And I'm putting you on the spot with this, but when you have something of that size, because to me, that shape actually suggests certain things. And, I, and I'm wondering, because and, I know that in some of uh, the documentation you have online, there's actually one particular case of a few of these cigar craft with some, I believe, discs around them that were seen at very high altitude. What does that shape suggest to you with your knowledge of aeronautics? Yeah. Well, David, you, you raised two parallel questions, I think, and you want a single answer from it. You raised the size question, you right. used the word huge, and you used the, the shape word, uh, the form, the outline form. 
Right. I have to ask you which of those two you're really going after. Maybe both. Let's break them into two. <laughs> okay. okay. Uh, let's talk about the size first. All right. I have interviewed witnesses, pilots, commercial pilots, and military pilots who look me in the eye and tell me that they're flying along at some high altitude uh, from a fairly modern cockpit, and they see much of their visual field filled with the object. Now, that's frightening. I mean, you're going to have a heart attack. You know, I would have a heart attack had that been oh, yeah. me. Oh, yeah. You don't want to see your sky filled with something apparently solid, <laughs> uh, even to the side of you, like Captain Tarucci up in the Japan Airlines case uh, years ago. The huge object implies something huge, obviously, something potentially very dangerous. It means that your airspace is not under control. It means that the air traffic controllers haven't done their job and kept it safe for you to fly through. Mm -hmm. So that the size by itself, right, quite apart from the shape, is very unsettling. Yeah. And, and your listeners who are pilots will be nodding their heads and understanding what I'm saying here. It shakes your faith in, in the whole security system of flying. It says that the see and avoid concept of flying is not going to work anymore. If this can happen to you uh, once, it might happen again. Or if it can happen to you, it can happen to a lot of other people. It means that you have, an, as a pilot, something immediately to do about it. Do you report it? Do you uh, change your direction? Do you dive? Do you climb? Do you pull off power? Uh, what do you do in three-dimensional space? Now, having said that, that, that size is so critical, so important, and there are documented cases of that kind, I must say that there does not, to me at least at this point, does not seem to be a relationship between the size of the object, the angular size, not the physical size, the angular size, and electromagnetic effects in the cockpit. Mm, okay. okay. All right. So that the, the bigger the object gets, for instance, the stronger the EM effects in the cockpit. That's very important. If we can find that as a reliable a data point, that is extremely important uh, from an EM uh, point of view. Now let me turn to the issue of shape. I think what you're basically asking me is, are there some shapes which are more important than others, in, uh, in this case in terms of, of aviation safety? The answer is no. Uh, shape is shape. Uh, it's just an outline. And whether or not it's aerodynamic isn't the issue. The issue is, is it going to interfere with your flight? Is it going to make you crash? Is it going to get your career in trouble if you report it and so forth? Does that make mm -hmm. sense? Yep. Okay. You also raised an interesting question there, Dr. Haynes. Getting your career in trouble, and that's possibly the biggest part of the issue. Do you think a lot of sightings of this kind of phenomena, whatever it might be, go unreported because airline pilots, air traffic controllers, etc., are simply afraid to put their jobs on the line, which is maybe a logical fear, to present this kind of stuff? Uh, yes, that's all I can say, yes. Uh, people uh, who are interested in that particular subject, uh, which is kind of the sociology of what we're talking about, should go to one of our tech reports on the website, the NARCAP website. Ted Rowe, our executive director, has done a very interesting paper on the sources of bias against reporting. 
And uh, so people who are seriously interested in that should really review his paper. Uh, he does a very good job of summarizing, of reviewing all of these reasons why pilots are, are not reporting these days. Mm. Fear is certainly one of them. So, so that, and Gene usually brings up the movie references, but there's that infamous scene at the very beginning of the Spielberg movie, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where you have that scene in the air traffic control room, a very tense scene of something going on, and essentially after this all goes down, the pilot's asked, do you want to report this? And he, he says, no, I don't want to report this. <laughs> and the air traffic controls each look at each other. So that then assumes, uh, Dr. Haynes, that a large percentage of these sightings do indeed go unreported. So I'm going to put you on the spot here. What percentage would you say represents the number of sightings that are reported versus unreported? Are we talking about maybe 10% of what, of what pilots see gets reported? Does that assume that there's another 90% of what they're seeing that is unknown to us? Mm -hmm. Well, NARCAP had the opportunity a number of years ago to conduct a survey within a major U.S. airline, who will go unnamed, by the way. They asked for anonymity. Mm -hmm. But we succeeded in sending out a survey form with quite a number of questions on it to the pilots of that airline. And we have reported the results of that survey on our website. It's one of our technical reports. And, of course, one of the questions we asked was, in your flying career, have you ever seen anything you couldn't identify? And the answer is either yes, no, or I'm not sure. Well, based on that database, uh, we discovered uh, that approximately 10%, oh, 15%, I should get the report out, actually. Let's do this, guys. Uh, let me pull that out, and I will have some specific numbers for you. I hate to shoot from the hip. It's, it's such an important number. Well, you know what? We can talk about other stuff while we're doing that, So, yeah. because obviously it is important. But the other thing is, with regard to that, maybe a corollary question, which is, how often have we had situations where a crash or some other disaster nearly occurred because of the presence of something unknown out there? Not very often. Okay. Not very often. If you will read my paper, Aviation Safety in America, a Previously Neglected Factor, which is tech report number one uh, on our website, it's kind of the paper that got the organization started in the first place. Mm -hmm. You will find in that, that paper, I believe there are two or three documented crashes, but not very many. And, and I summarize in that paper that NARCAP's position is that there is not a direct threat to aviation safety uh, because of the high degree of maneuverability of the phenomenon. And people need to think about the implications of that because that's quite uh, um, interesting speculation, you know. You know, when we look at stuff like this, you also wonder about the current state of the airline industry. And I think part of it is because airline pilots don't necessarily get as much money as they used to. And we think, of course, as what's his name, Captain Sullenberger, this gentleman who was pilot of this craft in New York City, lands in the Hudson River, right. and the plane is apparently struck by birds, I gather, is what yeah. the phenomenon was. And Captain Sullenberger, of course, is Central Casting's perfect airline pilot, the former military pilot who goes into civilian aviation. And this is the best kind of pilot. This is the journeyman pilot who you rely on every day for safety in the air. Are we still yep. getting people like that? 
Do we still have yeah. Captain Sullenberger signing up to work with these airlines to keep the level of airline safety at a high level? Yes, I, th- I, b- I really believe we are. I think we're very fortunate. I think that the uh, the training programs that are being given today are uh, tops in the world. The flight simulation capability is so realistic that you swear you're in the real cockpit when you're in a simulator mm-hmm. and so forth. By the way, I just pulled out this report on pilot survey report, uh, results. Mm-hmm. If you're interested in going back to that a minute. I'll tell you please. what, this is the kind of show it is. We can vary all over the pace. Go right back to it, please. Okay, before it falls off the, the uh, radar here. We had 40 respondents who were captains, okay, in, in our survey. We learned that of the 16 pilots who said they had seen something they couldn't identify, only four of them reported it to their appropriate authorities, all right? Well, so there's a data point for you. Twenty-five percent. About twenty-five percent reported it. Yes, and those are pretty. Uh, I would say that's not conjecture. That's actual survey data. Okay. So the sample size was forty captains. Well, let's see here. The sample no. The sample size was about three hundred pilots. It was okay. a smaller airline. About three hundred pilots. Okay. We got a twenty-three and a half percent return on our survey, which is quite remarkable. 70 of these pilots completed our survey and returned it to us, 23%. And I think that indicates really a high degree of interest in the subject. They, they were really willing to help us. But more importantly, the management was willing to go along with this. Uh, we'd appeal to a, what I would call a more major, uh, one of the larger, largest airlines in the country, and they wouldn't cooperate with us. If you had guaranteed them anonymity, why did you think, what Ad- would you guess? Adverse publicity. But if, you, if you've guaranteed anonymity? I don't know. That's a good question. Maybe they didn't believe us that we could do it mm. or would do it. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Are you ready to order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked. We answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says, separating signal from noise. It's just $14.95 plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To order the official Paracast t-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card or PayPal to place your order for the official Paracast t-shirt. 
You are Luke Erickes with Jesus and you are David Bandy. You never know what's going to happen next. We have Dr. Richard Haynes, Chief Scientist for NARCAP, joining us this week on the PowerCast. Now, we're focusing on some very serious issues, of course, airliner encounters with unidentified aerial phenomena. Now, what about civilian private aviation in the sense of not airline pilots, airlines, but just people who have the Cessna they take out for the weekend? Uh-huh. What about it? Do you find a fairly decent percentage of cases from them? Well, it depends on what you mean by fairly decent. Yes, there certainly are occurring. Uh, let me just summarize those statistics. Uh, they're not in front of me right now, so these are estimates from my AirCat database. But up until about the 1970s, the end of Blue Book, Project Blue Book in 1969, the great majority of cases that I had in my database were military. And the reason being that the military, you know, let them out. Uh, we heard about them so that they comprise maybe 60 or 70 percent of all total. After 1970, when the military essentially washed its hands of this whole subject and, and so forth, then the proportions jumped to commercial, that there's far more commercial cases coming in, relatively speaking now, uh, proportionally. But over that whole period of time, from about the 1930s on, it's, there's been a fairly constant proportion of private pilots but I, I've not been able to, what we call, normalize the database against the number of pilots flying. And that's what you have to do. These numbers are almost meaningless until you can normalize them in some way. You see what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Basically, uh, unless you know what the overall percentage is, yes, guess, yes. right? then you can't yes. really know. You, it's hard to plot activity if you don't know what the full size of your set is. That's exactly right. It right. sounds like you've had some statistics or something. Uh, no, actually, but uh, I have a real interest in physics and engineering, which will lead me to, to the next question, Dr. Haynes. So speaking of physics, I, I want to lead this into my next question, which is it's going to be a little, a little maybe geeky for some of our listeners, but um, I'm personally always interested in understanding physical effects of things. So uh, if you're in a boat... And there, another boat crosses your path. Let's say uh, you're in a you're in a small boat. Large ship crosses your path. The weight that that large ship leaves in the water behind it is going to have an effect on the stability of your boat when you then encounter that wake if you pass through it. I'm assuming with things like aircraft, certainly with jets, the issue of a wake is very important. If you're in an airplane. I'm guessing you don't want to go right into the wake that another aircraft leaves. That would then create turbulence. Is that a reasonable assumption? Oh, that's a very accurate assumption. It's a, fact, a statement of fact. And the FAA has, has for many years, issued uh, turbulence separation uh, requirements at airports, for instance. Okay. Uh, airspace, you know, con congested airspace. Right. So you've got an, air, uh, an airplane pilot in an airplane flying, and they see a UAP not pacing them, not going in the same direction in a parallel sense, but let's say uh, uh, let's say in a perpendicular fashion, crossing their path. Mm -hmm. Okay. In those kinds of sightings, what percentage of the airline pilots report having turbulence 
from some sort of air disturbance in a craft, let's say especially a larger craft, versus airline pilots that are surprised when they find that there is no air turbulence. Or, and I guess I'm asking if there are cases where airline pilots have been shocked to find that where they would expect to find a large amount of air turbulence, let's say from a large craft perpendicularly crossing their path, they mm-hmm. find nothing. Mm-hmm. Are there reports like that? Yeah, I understand. Uh, well, to, to give you a concise answer, mm-hmm. uh, I have examples of both. Uh, and uh, there are certainly cases where pilots are astonished that there is no uh, turbulence uh, encountered. However, to be very um, fair to them, there might be turbulence out there uh, which a particular sensor on board an airplane could pick up. Uh, but on the other hand, um, it, the distance may be so great that by the time the airplane gets there, your, your airplane you're in gets there, it's already dissipated. So distance to the phenomenon is really kind of the key issue here. Right. And, and, and that also, uh, I would imagine, would then uh, color their perception of scale. Absolutely, yes. There was if, a. If, yeah, we're, if we're looking at a phenomenon, we don't know what it is. We have no size reference, right. uh, except in one situation, and these are very important cases where the phenomenon is seen against the ground background. And I've argued that one of the real values of having pilots as reporters is they can maneuver their airplanes, and they can, in some cases, fly above the phenomenon and get it imaged against the ground background, which then puts an absolute distance on it, right? right. The object can be no further away than the ground is by calculation and so forth, 10,000 feet or 30,000 feet or whatever. And once we know that, then we're really in a position to do some good uh, calculations on its absolute size. Mm-hmm. What percentage of pilot sightings have corroborating radar data associated with them? Mm-hmm. Oh boy, uh, that's a loaded question. Uh, you're going to, depending on who you talk to, you'll hear estimates all over the map. Uh, um, I'd say my my estimate on the range. Uh, I can't give you a single number, sure. But it would range anywhere from two percent um, to probably sixty percent. Uh, sorry to be that range. vague. Well, of course it is. You didn't specify ground radar versus cockpit uh, aircraft-borne radar, you see. Um, Ground radar. Ground radar. Oh, ground radar. Mm -hmm. Well, the Air Force looked at that, of course, uh, in some cursory fashion back in the 60s for Project Blue Book and Project Grudge and Project Sign. Um, But radar really wasn't that well-established, if you will. It was there. And the dew line is based upon it, for instance. You know what the dew line is? No. Oh, I... uh, distant early warning. Um, back in the uh, missile defense days, Cold War days, the dew line was established across Canada and parts of Alaska to detect incoming aircraft from you know where, mm-hmm. uh, behind the Iron Curtain. Well, that's, I remember uh, Major Donald Kehoe referenced yes. that in some of his books. Yes, of course. Well, it was largely based upon radar, um, crude as it was at that time. Uh, uh, radar coverage today is much more complete 
Uh, although, as our O'Hare report discovered and actually recommended to the authorities, uh, our radar does not apparently see certain classes of phenomena. It's invisible to the certain classes of, of, of radar that we're using. So it's a very difficult um, question you ask. It's an important one, but I'm afraid we're just not in a position to answer it very well yet. That's why right. I'm kind of... Uh, is this a technological limitation or simply a decision on how to program the radar systems as to what they can see? No, no, no. It's it's technological. It it starts kind of at ground zero at what wavelengths you uh, you uh, decide are going to be most um, effective in detecting solid objects at a distance. It's like, well, how do I say this? It's like detecting things through fog. That you want to have a penetration wavelength through the water molecule, uh, which makes up the fog, right? Uh, without a lot of scattering, with a lot of, a lot of, without a lot of absorption, and be able to pick up things through fog, uh, objects through fog. Um, and so it takes a very deliberate, careful calculation of the wavelengths that will penetrate fog. Well, the same thing applies, I think, in general, uh, to clear air. Um, and distance and so forth, um, dissipation of energy with distance. Um, it's a very specialized field. I'm getting in over my head here because I'm not a radar person. <laughs> Fortunately, we've got a couple really top-level radar people in NARCAP uh, who I rely upon. Here's a question about one of your reports, Dr. Haynes. I was reading uh, the report entitled, 56 aircraft pilot sightings involving EM effects. And um, it's my personal habit. I, I very often will read the introduction and conclusion before I jump into the body of something. I think that's probably true for a lot of people. But in your uh, summary and conclusions of this particular report, uh, you talk about how a uh, majority of the cases of uh, cockpit instruments, cabin lights, weapon systems, radar contact engines, and so forth, um, there was behavior, I guess, behavioral aberrations that were consistent with known laws of physics. But then you conclude, in only a few, there were truly anomalous effects from the point of view of modern-day physics. These data deserve further scrutiny. I was hoping you could elaborate upon what you were referring to with that, where you have things where there were situations, effects, that... Um, where there were truly anomalous effects from the point of view of modern-day physics. Could you elaborate? Sure. Um, let me elaborate by giving you an example. Please. Um, I interviewed a commercial pilot who had with his, it was a DC-10 aircraft, fully a lot of passengers in the back, and a three-man crew. And I interviewed both the captain and the first officer of that flight. And he told me, they've told me, that the uh, gyro system malfunction, um, in a way that was not, it wasn't a precession. Um, and some of your readers, will, uh, your listeners will understand that. Uh, uh, gyros are based upon an inertial system, not a, ge a magnetic, geomagnetic kind of an effect, right? Um, he told me that the gyro system was, when the object was nearby, Whatever the phenomenon was, I call it an object. When it was very near the airplane, the gyro system really malfunctioned in a very serious way. And that after the phenomenon left, 
the gyro system started functioning normally again. Well, to me, that's pretty anomalous. And if if you know of somebody out there that can explain that, by golly, I'd love to talk with them. Um, that was anomalous. That electromagnetics is one thing. Um, if you take a point source of, of some radiating source of energy and you look at how strong the field strength is at a distance from it, the effect at a distance falls off as the inverse square of the distance, okay? Hmm. If it's a magnetic point source, then the, the magnetic field uh, strength falls off as, I believe, the inverse cube of the distance. Well, those are pretty well-established physical principles, well-understood principles, been established for a long, long time. In this case of, of the gyro compass, on the other hand, there's something else going on. That's not in the electromagnetic domain. That's in the inertial domain. Is, does that make sense? That um, I'm understanding what you're saying. Okay. But actually, when you understand that, what it tells you doesn't make sense. <laughs> well, that's what makes it anomalous. <laughs> exactly. Well, we're going to have a physics lesson on the show. Listen, Dr. Haynes, we're going to do a quick break from hour one to hour two, and maybe this would be a good time for you to tell our listeners where they can get more information about Narcop. You've got some wonderful reports on your site, and while we've been talking, I've been scanning through the ones I haven't read yet. I know David's probably read every single one of them because he's the kind of person who does that. So where do we find more information about all the work that you've done over the years? Okay. Um, well, I would start with NARCAP, uh, www.narcap, N-A-R-C-A-P, dot org. Uh, and it's a pretty clear website uh, in terms of navigating it and so forth. But then I would go to, I've written some books that are available on uh, Amazon.com and other places. They're out of print, by and large. Um, one of them is entitled Project Delta. And it is a systematic look at past cases where the reporters have have uh, seen two or more objects at the same time and place. Okay, uh, it's it's kind of uh, easy to find cases where a single object is there or a single phenomenon. But what I was interested in, what can we learn from multiple objects at the same time? So that's Project Delta. I believe that was published in 1994. Approximately, Project Delta. Another book that I wrote way back uh, is called Melbourne Episode, and it is a. The first half of the book is a accident investigation about a young man who disappeared out of Melbourne, Australia, uh, 1976, and has never been found. No remains have been found of him ever, uh, and so the first half of the book is is an accident investigation where I pretty thoroughly researched the last day of his life, everything leading up to, to the disappearance. Uh, the second half of this book, Melbourne Episode, is fiction, and it takes the readers through four hypothetical um, explanations of what might have happened to him, all of which are um, consistent with the data of, of what we know happened to him. And uh, since we don't know what happened to him, I simply say to the reader, the ending is up to you. You choose the, the which chapter you like the best and leave it at that. And I've got some other books, but I think that's probably a, a good start. Uh, Very good. And we'll have more of Dr. Richard Haynes on the other side of the PowerCast. Yeah. 
You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. We're joined on hour number two of the Paracast by Dr. Richard Haynes, Chief Scientist of NARCAP. And one thing occurred to me, of course, obviously we have a situation where pilots might be naturally reluctant to report UFO encounters. But do you find situations often where the passengers are the ones who initiate the information? That maybe the report didn't come from the pilots or the passengers said, you know what, I was on flight XX going from Melbourne, Australia to wherever, and suddenly I saw this thing out there. And we barely escaped hitting the craft. What happened? <laughs> yes, so we certainly do get cases like that. However, NARCAP is focused towards the aviation world and the aviation community. And we would much rather, of course, get reports from the, the air crew for lots of reasons. Uh, but we're certainly interested in, in passenger corroborative evidence. When a passenger does that, they don't know where they are, you know. They say, oh, we're here. Now we're into our flight from JFK to Chicago. Well, so what? Uh, we'd have to do an extensive flight reconstruction to put them over Ohio or somewhere. You see the point. So the level of useful information from the passengers is pretty low. Hmm. So let's get back to the, the pilot stuff. Here's a here's a question that I thought about just in the last segment as we were talking. So you've got airplanes that essentially have different types of malfunctions at a certain proximity to these to these UAPs. Is in the research that you've done, Doctor Haynes, do the pilots convey to you that they feel that the malfunctioning of their craft was an accidental result of proximity? Or do you have, have you ever had a situation where a pilot um, conveys to you that they felt that the object purposefully got near them to give them problems in the air? Do you see what I'm saying? Oh, boy. Well, that would be asking the pilot to uh, draw conclusions that they're just not qualified to, to make. No, I've never had a pilot jump to that level of conclusion, and I wouldn't expect them to either. They're pretty level-headed people. Um, they make you know, really high-level decisions, life-and-death decisions, sometimes in marginal information situations, and I highly respect them. Mm -hmm. um, so, no, I, I really wouldn't say that that was the case. 
the, the reason I'm asking is I'm, I'm thinking about the specific uh, case in 1976 with the Iranian uh, military jet fighter yes. uh, that went after this object mm-hmm. and basically had its navigation systems disconnected, mm-hmm. had its, uh, uh, if I'm not wrong, had its uh, weapon systems disengaged. I mean, that, that's, my, that's my understanding from that report. That's what happened. Right. Have you encountered any other reports that, that mirror that um, in your research? If I do, they are very deeply buried because there are not very many of them. Okay. Um, I'm having trouble remembering anything like that. That was almost, that was almost unique. Yeah. I think my personal current view is that the phenomenon is it, it doesn't care whether it's perceived or not and that it's almost deliberate in its exposure um, otherwise why is it seen at all if it has a cloaking capability why doesn't it use it all the time it's as if it's a natural phenomenon doesn't care see natural phenomenon like ball lightning don't have motives right. at least I don't think they have motives that's my own bias um, and if they don't have motives, they're not human-like, they're not anthropomorphic in that sense. Um, and so they don't care if they're seen or not, you see? Sure, there's no malevolence or benevolence to lightning. No, that's yeah. not a dimension, exactly. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but that said, do you have any reports that you remember where the pilot conveyed any sort of a sense of malevolence or benevolence. I guess I need to more generalize the question to make it useful. Mm-hmm. So not that they felt that one of these objects was trying to interfere with their flight, but um, a, a situation where they felt that, for example, like an object got in their way almost to see what they would do. Oh, Yes, I, now that's a, a good way of putting the question, and I think that there are a number of examples of that happening. Can yes. you give us some? Can you give us some examples of that? Okay, uh, I think what we're we're really talking about here is a matter of communications, uh, and at a deeper level, the possibility of intelligence being associated with the phenomenon. And to me, that's a key issue. Uh, it's been a prime concern of mine for twenty, thirty years now, and I. I published a book some years ago now called Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind, and it's available from Amazon and some other places. It's out of print. But in that book, I took a look at over 200 reported cases from around the world where humans have deliberately, with forethought, uh, attempted to, to signal the phenomenon. And in all of those 200 and some cases, the phenomenon signaled back much to hmm. the surprise of the witnesses. Uh, well, um, I don't want to go into a lot of details, but it was a, an eye-opener for me. First of all, I didn't expect to find very many cases like that, and mm-hmm. the more I looked in the literature and, and talked to researchers and so forth, the more I found. And some of these are spectacular events where humans uh, are acting. I have a whole chapter devoted to friendly human behavior. Like, for instance, flashing a flashlight at night up into the night sky at a light or something up there, mm-hmm. or waving your hand during the daytime. That's a, those are friendly responses. 
And so the whole chapter deals with friendly responses and what kind of reply did they get back from the phenomenon. The next chapter is aggressive, angry, aggressive human responses and what kind of responses did they get back. Well, and then so forth. There are other categories as well. Um, what I discovered is um, very interesting and provocative evidence that leads me to suggest that there is an intelligent quotient uh, behind the phenomenon, that they are in some cases able or willing to reply uh, in some coded fashion, for instance, or like repeating Morse. A uh, number of cases where guys know Morse code with their flashlight and, you know, send signals out and get the same signals back. If the phenomenon is nothing but an optical mirror, then they would expect to get the identical response back without mm -hmm. delay. But the book deliberately takes those cases out and throws them away. We want some delay in there, so it's not a mirror. You, you understand. Well, absolutely. So, Along those same lines, um I was going to ask, well, if if the response is simply just a mirror, even with a delay, potentially what kind of intelligence can we assign to that versus, for example, uh, something more anomalous, a response that is not a mirror, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which well, to me is, is almost more interesting. Okay, well, I'll give you an example. Uh, Please. I interviewed a GI who was stationed in Korea in 1951. Uh, and he was an artillery battalion. This is a ground witness now. This is not a pilot. Mm -hmm. And he told me that one evening they were getting dug in to bombard a village called Chorwan, about halfway up the peninsula there, in an area called the Iron Triangle. And uh, he told me that down in the valley that separated them from the enemy on the north flank of the hills, the village was in Chorwan, down in the valley there. They were getting dug in, ready to bombard the village the next day. And down in the, the much below their altitude came this orange light, which they all thought was a kind of like a uh, Chinese lantern, a balloon-wafted weapon of some sort, uh, for just psychological reasons or whatever, for fear and whatever. And so they took it as a weapon and started shooting at it. Uh, and every time they would send a shell down, um, not every time, they would have a tracer shell from time to time to, to watch the trajectory of their shells going down for targeting reasons. The shell would explode during the, uh, near this red, orange, red object, but it wouldn't do anything to it. And the, uh, the next shell would go down, and the object would sometimes jog to one side, and the shell would explode, and then the object would still be there. Okay. Well, after some time of, of doing this, he said to me, the object started coming up right towards us, our gun emplacement. We had like 75, 100 guys right there. And so he got permission from his company commander, Lieutenant Evans was his name, to fire his M1 rifle with an armor-piercing round in it right at this metallic-appearing disc which was hovering over the, the emplacement up there and their guns, howitzers. Basically, big guns. He said, well, "Big guns, big guns." Yeah, big guns, big guns. And yeah. he told me that he fired this round, and he heard his bullet ricochet off the surface of the object, and that the instant the bullet struck the surface, and he heard the ricochet, 
the, the brightness and color changed, first of all. The second thing happened was that a low uh, throbbing vibration sound came out of it. He reminded him of a, like a diesel locomotive engine, okay? He said the third thing that happened was that the object started to zigzag and, and change its position very radically. It's just try to hit me now sort of thing, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, the fourth thing that happened was a beam of light, he said, came out the bottom of it and swept over the ground uh, like a laser beam. Um, and he told me that he was caught in that beam um, uh, several times, his bare skin. And he said it felt like an electric shock. It was a kind of um, a tingling <laughs> sensation. Well, to make a long story short, um, I wrote to the Army Department of Records in St. Louis after I'd talked to this gentleman and asked for, I had his division and company and regiment and all that, and his name and so forth. And sure enough, I got the big package back from them, and he was listed, and Lieutenant Evans was listed, and so forth. He told me that uh, quite a number of men had to be ambulanced out to a MASH hospital several days later because of various kinds of illnesses, sicknesses. And in fact, that included him. And sure enough, in these Army records, evacuated to the hospital was written in ink behind the names of about 50 to 75 guys. That's hmm. quite a number. Now, the point is this. I'm really taking a long time to answer your question. No, this is uh, good. This is a good, this is a good anecdote. Approximately, I don't know, 10 or 15 years later, a duck hunter in America, central part of the country here, was out hunting ducks one early morning, and it was kind of a foggy morning, he said, and an object came and hovered above him, and he he was afraid, he shot at it with a shotgun, and would you believe the object, whatever it was, went through the same four events that the GI from Korea told me he went through, his went through, in the same order, by the way. Well, okay, that kind of strains probabilities. Um, to me, that those two cases uh, suggest a form of communication um, that when shot at, they don't shoot back. And I'm really getting off track here from NARCAP, and I apologize for that. No, 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 don't apologize. Uh, this is actually really relevant. I don't think any of us have ever heard of these cases. Uh, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions about this. You said that when the object was coming up, Mm -hmm. uh, they originally had seen it as an orange light, a but then once it, a small orange kind of a, a, a self-illuminated thing. Yes, correct, yes. Okay. Yeah. So then at a certain point, it's hovering above them, and now it's a disc. It's a large metallic disc, and the company commander gives permission to everybody in the group to start firing at it. And at what so point does it change? At what point does it change... It's, oh, he never, you know, he never said. Uh, I, I don't right. know. I don't okay. know. But right. he did tell me that they're firing off these big weapons, this thing now, after it changed color and brightness. It went from an orange-red to a intense blue-white. He said that none of our shells would touch it anymore. It was as if he, his conjecture was it put up a force field of some sort, okay, mm -hmm. that prevented the, the, the shells from striking its surface. Uh, that's his conjecture. We don't know, of course.
Fate magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, Send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. This is Leslie Kane, and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information, and you are listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're speaking with Dr. Richard Haynes, who's the chief scientist of NARCAP, and we're thrilled to actually have this interview with him. We know, Dr. Haynes, that uh, you specifically have avoided speaking uh, to a large degree publicly about this topic, so we deeply, deeply appreciate your coming on the show to talk with us. Uh, I don't think we've had a chance to say that to you yet during the episode, and I just wanted to convey that to you right now. Um, I appreciate that. Uh, it's no problem that we're getting a little bit off topic. Hopefully you don't mind, because this mystery is just is so deep that any clues seem to potentially be useful. So what you just conveyed to us, which these two episodes were separated by quite a number of years. Mm-hmm. Yes. And yeah. yet there are, there are these specific similarities that, like you said, would indicate some some form of communication potentially. Obviously, yeah. we're not we don't know. Yeah. <laughs> this is all still a mystery. Let's let's go back to pilot uh, related sightings for a moment. In tabulating and arranging all of this data, uh, should we assume that you've done some sort of trend analysis of this to see if there are any kind of trends that emerge that are that are definable. I know that um, on the reports that you have you uh, online, that you typically uh, sort of break them up into specific periods. So that there were three reports that I had found. One, uh, selected sightings from aircraft from 73 to 78. Another one was from 42 to 52. And then there was the, the one report that I was really fascinated by, the 56 aircraft pilot sightings involving EMFX. That seemed to be over a fairly uh, sort of a longer period. In those time frames, in, in the research, the analysis work you did of this data, did you find anything that pointed to definable trends of any sort in these sightings? No. I, honestly saying, I, can, I, I can't think of any. Uh, I think the phenomenon has been remarkably stable uh, on a number of dimensions. And to me, that's very significant. Uh, I remember, I think it was Dr. Alan Hynek, a good colleague of mine years ago, who who coined the term embarrassment of riches. Perhaps you've heard that. That what we face in this field is an embarrassment of riches, that we have too much. 
quite um, in opposition to what the skeptics would want us to believe, that we've got too much data, and it's embarrassing. Um, but having said that, my data look at the data set shows that the phenomenon is, is quite stable, actually, in, in most respects. Now, you pointed out a difference, a seeming difference in shape, uh, and I would probably agree with that just in general, although I haven't specialized in, in that aspect lately. Uh, but when it comes to what the phenomenon does up near an airplane in flight, uh, it's quite consistent, quite consistent. So when we hear about things like flaps or waves of sightings, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, in the 1990s, uh, Mexico City seems to have experienced a significant uh, flap of sightings in the same way that last year, and actually continuing into this year in Argentina, mm -hmm. there's been a very serious uptick in the number of sightings. Um, what you're stating is that the consistency of sightings has been fairly stable since, I guess, the 40s. So I'm, I'm not talking about the consistency in the number of sightings. I'm talking about the consistency in what the phenomenon appears to be. Ah, okay, okay. It's not the numbers. Uh, I see. Uh, let me just summarize briefly from my AirCat data, this larger database, which is worldwide, uh, that it looks, statistically speaking at least, that July is the highest month of frequency of sighting. In other words, if you wanted to optimize the chance of seeing one, July would be the month to, to go out and look. Okay. Now, that is very interesting because that's a statistic which seems to be holding for both the North, um, the North Continent, uh, I mean, above the, the equator and below the equator. In other words, one's in the summer and one's in the winter. And so if your hypothesis is that UAP reports are generated because there are more people outdoors, then it doesn't seem to fit quite as well. You see hmm. right? Absolutely. Yes. And actually, when you said July, it kind of made a little thing go off my head in that, that July of 1974 is when I had the sighting of this large air cigar craft in Caracas, Venezuela. Happens oh. to be July of 1974. Mm -hmm. uh, interestingly enough, and and of course, what I think a lot of people hopefully realize is that you know, July up here in the United States, the weather is very different from July in Buenos Aires, Argentina, <laughs> where it's it's cold and wet in July down there. Uh, sure is. So yeah, this idea of people being outside and that increasing the number of sightings that has nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. it oh, there's another statistic which is time of day, which has been repeated by scads of researchers now all around the world, many in America. And that is the daytime-nighttime, the light-dark dimension, that we see a, I would say, a significant increase in the number of sightings after dark. Well, uh, one simple explanation is that self-luminous objects are more visible at night just because of contrast. Okay, they're seen against sure. a darker background. Uh, but I think there may be something more than that. Uh, if we are dealing with an intelligence here, uh, it could be that darkness provides a camouflage, a, um, a needed, necessary mask, if you will, to hide behind. If, I say if, if it's desired. 
Uh, on the other hand, if you want to deliberately expose yourself, um, then nighttime is the way to do it. You just turn your lights on. Okay. That, that brings up a, absolutely, and that brings up a very interesting question that has come up more than a couple of times on the Paracast forums from some of our uh, more involved listeners who have questioned the need for these UAPs to have lights. There's been a question of what potential functionality could could these lights serve, and 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 we know very well what they serve in terms of aeronautics and airplanes. What's your thought about that question? Well, uh, if we there's a number of possible answers, obviously. Uh, sure. But one of them is that we are dealing with an intelligence here who is trying to be as safe with us as we are with them, and not collide with us. And by putting lights on them, they help us avoid them. Okay. Now that's simple-minded, uh, common-sense kind of an explanation. No, actually, I've never heard anybody express that. Gene, have you? No, not at all. I'll go for the simple-minded. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> Macy's my middle name, you know. No, but Dr. <laughs> Haynes, seriously, I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that before. Well, you have now. That's interesting. Okay. Well, there's another possibility. There are many possibilities, but another one is that the lights that people are seeing are completely artifactual. They're completely related somehow to the energy manipulation of the phenomenon itself. Mm-hmm. Either naturally or, or deliberately, under intelligence, such that in fact my old colleague uh, Jim Campbell years ago uh, suggested this: an ionization effect. Uh, so much energy being pumped into the surrounding atmosphere uh, by the phenomenon somehow that the, the the molecules of the air were simply ionizing and becoming self-luminous in different colors, and we were seeing them. You see. Well, that's cool. That's artifactual. That's not. Uh, it's not deliberate. So, based on the database of pilots' sightings, mm-hmm. what percentage of these sightings have been self-illuminated craft versus craft that appear matte um, and more reflective of light? Ah, uh-huh. well. Uh, first of all, there's two answers there. There's a daytime answer and a nighttime answer. The daytime answer is that the great, great, great majority. I would say 99% are passive reflecting surfaces, mm-hmm. usually matte like uh, anodized aluminum you know, or chrome, polished chrome, uh, some metallic uh, sheen that, that reflects sunlight or skylight. And only in a, like 1% that I can think of are the daylight cases also emitting some sort of high-powered light that you see against the sky background the bright sky background. The nighttime cases, on the other hand, are, I would say, 90 to 95% self-illuminating. And only in a few cases are they seen by silhouette against some brighter background, or the moon, for instance. Are you ready to order the official Paracast T-shirt? You asked. We answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says, separating signal from noise. 
It's just $14.95 plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To order the official PowerCast t-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card or PayPal to place your order for the official PowerCast t-shirt. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. talking to Dr. Richard Haynes, chief scientist at NARCAP. And the first question that comes to mind is, would we see those lights in the daytime if it was dark? Maybe the lights are there all the time. Oh, well, that's a good question. I have no idea. That's a $64 well, question. Yeah, well, but see, actually, there was something what Dr. Haynes said that just struck me in that if you have a vast majority, and, and when we say lights and self-illuminating, we have to differentiate between some sort of a soft glow covering something versus things like very specific shape arrays of lighted segments on a craft. Those are two very different things in a strange way. I know that, for example, in the cigar sighting I had in Caracas, the cigar craft itself was very dark, and, and this happened while it was still light out. It was about 6 o'clock in the evening, but it was a July evening. It was still light outside. Uh, the, the craft itself, very dark, very matte. But then a hatch or some opening underneath of it opened up, out of which spilled a tremendous amount of extremely bright white light. Mm-hmm. So th- those are two different things. Those are basically you have what, what appears to be a, a matte object, which then has a, some sort of an aperture open that then emits light. But what you said before, Dr. Haynes, was very interesting in that if indeed we were talking about some sort of ionization of air, that being part of, let's say, a propulsion system, you would then expect to see that effect regardless of whether it was day or night. No, well, not necessarily. It depends on the contrast and the human eye. Well, that's a good point. Well, the human eye has roughly, what, 12 log units of sensitivity range uh, once it's dark adapted, once it's fully adjusted to the dark. Um, but in daylight, uh, you lose maybe five or six of those log units of, of sensitivity. Mm-hmm. Well, so there are, I could probably some, do some calculations pretty quickly and tell you whether or not you, the eye would be likely to see uh, dim sparkles, for instance, on a daylight sky. You know? mm. Okay. Fact, okay. That makes know, sense. Yeah, okay. Well, then, th- there's something else, and let's talk about the O'Hare sighting for a minute and then relate it back to pilot sightings. In the reports of the O'Hare object, people described it almost uniformly as having indistinct edges. It was almost as if there was some some sort of distortion of air, perhaps a spinning of the object that made it very hard to discern hard edges to the contour of the thing. In terms of pilot sightings, what's the breakdown there? That, that's very, very common. 
Now, let's talk about daytime, for instance. Okay. In, in daytime, at altitude, these guys are usually up way above the clouds, all right? And they do that for turbulence reasons and traffic avoidance and visibility and all that good stuff. If a phenomenon is coming up uh, or is at their altitude off one wing, for instance, or on the negative ahead of them or whatever, uh, they usually have a sky background to look against, and the object will have fairly sharp outlines, but it will very often be fuzzy, if you will. And to, to me, that's an important data point. How can a fuzziness attach itself to the surface when it's traveling 500 miles an hour? Okay. Why isn't it swept off by the windstream, by the molecules of the air? So there's something like the boundary layer effect, which can be happening here. You see where I'm going with this? Uh, well, yeah, absolutely, because we're ultimately it's all a discussion of physics. Yes, of course. Uh, we need some aerophysics uh, physicists in this game. Absolutely. Uh, That's going to lead me to a really crazy question for you. What about translucency? Yes, there are a number of, of well-documented pilot reports uh, that involve a semi-translucent, transparent phenomenon, uh, which uh, in some cases will actually disappear and then reappear. And I'm particularly not very interested in those. I think those are optic, very likely atmospheric optical effects, you know, like ice crystal refraction and so forth. So we're pretty much up on the physics of, of um, phenomenon in the air, natural phenomenon in the air. So uh, translucence, it, it, to me, isn't... If I were a pilot, I'm not particularly concerned about running into a translucent phenomenon. It's the solid ones I'm concerned about. Mm -hmm. Have you ever... Here's another left-field question. Have you ever, in the many cases that you've looked into, have you ever heard of a solid object becoming translucent at some point and then returning to full solidity? No, I don't think so. There could be some, but I don't know everything. Uh, uh, there could be some that I don't know about, but no, I really can't. Uh, I think that as far as I could go in that direction, it would be a, an apparently solid object that changes shape, which, of course, is just equally as puzzling. Let's talk about that, then. What would be, in the, in the cases you've researched, the most extreme version or iteration of something that changed shape? Well, okay, there's a case from Australia. A couple of guys were in a plane flying across the center part of Australia. I forget what direction. But they reported to the authorities, said, do you have any traffic up here with us? And the authorities said no. But they said, but we are looking out our windshield, and down below us, seeing against the ground background, by the way, is a, uh, a cigar-shaped object with kind of portholes along its edge, and is changing shape over time as we're watching it. It's it's flowing along with us, okay, at their speed, in their direction, and that it goes basically from a sphere to a oblong cigar to a sphere to a cigar to a sphere, and that during that cycle of shape change. Small objects, spherical objects, come out of it, do about a 180, and then go back into it. Okay. What was well, the duration of that sighting? Oh, I don't remember now. Listen, I've got a couple thousand of them. It's hard to remember all the facts, uh, <laughs> all the details. <laughs> yeah. But it, it was a fascinating case from that standpoint of uh, a transmogrification, if you will, a change in shape.
because it violates a whole lot of laws of physics, doesn't it? Oh, in a major way. <laughs> right. And also so, then suggests to you it's not it's not some predictable natural phenomenon. It's pretty none far that from I know that. of. No. Yeah. None that I know of. Oh, that had an EM effect, by the way, and the radio failed until the phenomenon went away, and then the radio started up again. You see, there's equipment failure all the time, not all the time, but electromagnetic equipment can fail in the cockpit. The question is, is it temporary, transient, or is it permanent and has to be repaired after landing? In the majority of the cases I have, it's temporary, it's transient. That's very significant. It's significant from the standpoint, first of all, that there's no evidence left behind. When you land, the technician doesn't come out and do a test on the failed equipment and find out what burned out. Why? Because it didn't burn out. It continued to work, you see. Mm -hmm. um, to me, that is part of the mystery here. Uh, why do things work only transiently? Well, just using logic, uh, it would be because of perhaps a, an energy overload because of the proximity of the object. You see the idea. This, Absolutely. The, the radio, for instance, was not designed for uh, extra strong signals, for instance. Or there's a, a shifting of frequency that the radio can't handle anymore, so the radio doesn't work anymore. This, you know, it malfunctions. Would it also be accurate to say that in the case of, for example, we're talking about EMF here, let's then slightly differentiate and talk about EMP. If you had an electromagnetic pulse, mm -hmm. that's more likely to effectively burn out circuitry yeah. and not, not be transient. I think that it's important to make that, that distinction mm -hmm. because if we were talking about stuff that was an EMP, you know, if somebody was on the ground detonating a device that would create EMP, that basically that would have the effect of not just being a transient effect on a on an airplane's uh, electrical systems. That would effectively burn them out. Is that a correct statement I'm making? Well, I'm not a physicist. I, I'm not really qualified to answer that. Uh, okay. Just from a common sense point of view, I would I would think that it would function dependent on the energy density of the EMP to begin with. Uh, mm -hmm. Is it a small EMP level or large? Sure, sure. Well, I'm, I'm thinking about a large one, one that would, you know, basically mm -hmm. be enough to effectively short circuit an electronic yeah. circuit. You know, basically, oh, I, where, I where it's not coming back. Yeah. Yeah, I can't answer that. Have efforts been made at all to duplicate that kind of effect in a laboratory? What, the MP? Yes. I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, well, no, really yeah, no, out of my field, and I just don't know. All right, let's, let's rein it back in for a moment to. Um, geographical regions, uh, something that I don't think we've, uh, Gene, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think we've ever done a show on the infamous Bermuda Triangle. No. Uh, right. I, I didn't think we, we, we have. So here's a question, Dr. Haynes. In researching these things, is there any correlation with geographic regions that suggests that some regions are more likely to, to have this type of activity versus others? Or even more specifically, in the reports you've looked at, have any of them originated from within side of the region called the Bermuda Triangle? Oh, boy. Well, those are two separate questions, of course. Um, <laughs> yes, they are. Yeah. Which one do you want to talk about? Let's talk about uh, the first one, geographic regions. Well, you know, Amelia Earhart comes to mind. She disappeared. Folklore is generated. Devotees pick up the cause, books are written, publicity, movies, and so forth. 
She did not, as far as I know, implicate a UAP. Okay, but she's missing. This young man that I investigated uh, out of Melbourne, Australia, years and years ago, he disappeared. But UAP were implicated very clearly uh, in many ways. Uh, and it has generated folklore and divided opinion and uh, strongly held opinion, by the way, and denials and so forth, the whole sociological genre. Both of those cases were over water. Here's where I'm going with this answer. Mm -hmm. Our planet being so largely covered by water that once you fly over it, you're liable to fly under it. <laughs> you're, you're asking yourself to be underwater, okay? Uh, just by virtue of gravity and, and running out of fuel or whatever. Sure. So just on a, that basis alone, I would expect a lot of missing cases over oceans and lakes, large lakes, for instance. Right. And right. you look at the database, and sure enough, they're there. You can find a whole lot of people. And so people then come along and want to write books and get famous and say, okay, I'm going to take an area called the Bermuda Triangle and, and uh, research it. And sure mm -hmm. enough, they find cases over the Bermuda Triangle, you see. So sure. I, kind of, I, I guess I'm summarizing almost tongue-in-cheek and saying you're going to find what you're looking for. No, and that's a, a totally valid response. And, and, you know, and as you said, as you brought up these two cases, Amelia Earhart and this other fellow, I was thinking the case of Steve Fawcett, who uh, goes down with his airplane, I believe it was uh, in, in Nevada, and uh, it was only because this was a, a wealthy, famous guy, and they, you know, they searched for him very hard that they actually found him, but it was months and months and months yeah. be, before they found him. So it's, it, you know, I, I think it's, it's reasonable to think that a plane can go down even not over the water but over land and still potentially never be found yes certainly yes. it's happened absolutely they're still finding remains of world war ii aircraft that went down you know mm -hmm. borneo Sumatra, and jungles and so forth absolutely. Yeah. but with gps you know ground prox i mean ground prox i mean emergency uh, locator beacons elts LBs and satellite monitoring and better radar coverage, we're going to see a progressive decline in those kind of cases from now on. Right. I know we're coming to the end of our time with you here on this episode of the Paracast. Dr. Haynes, you've been looking at this for a long time, and uh, it seems pretty clear that you're, you're trying to be open-minded about this. Uh, at the same time, uh, there are some things about this whole topic and discussion that uh, probably frustrate you as much as they frustrate us. In all of these years, based on all of the time you've spent looking at this and the amazing amount of data that you've uh, put together, what are your thoughts about this? And this is like the big question. What are your thoughts about our potential to even potentially understand this? Do you think that we ever can understand what's going on here? It's a big question. Oh, boy. No. Oh, uh, yeah, that's a philosophical question. I know. Yes, I, I would say yes, um, and that's probably a very brave kind of a thing here. Um, you know, I've heard it argued by some colleagues of mine that we won't understand the phenomenon until they want us to. Right. Well, buried, buried in that kind of trite answer, of course, is the assumption that, that they are sentient, that they have benevolent motives, uh, that they are similar to us, and they, 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 you know. I believe personally that God created this planet 
the universe life as the Bible teaches. That's one of my beliefs. And that he's ultimately a creative God. And that who are we men to limit his creativity? So that he very likely created life on other planets. Uh, I think that's a very high likelihood. And that if that's the case, they very likely have space programs, and like we have space programs, and they happen to be ahead of us. Uh, they got here before we got there. And I sound—I know that sounds rather perhaps naive, but uh, it works for me, and I find a great deal of comfort in that, and and confidence that uh, we can explore, and we're supposed to explore, and we're called out into the the depths of outer space, and I've had a little bit of a, a role in some of that myself. And it's important, uh, he gave us an intellect and a creativity ourselves to use, and so we ought to be using it, and not sticking our heads in the sand and, and denying the phenomenon and saying it doesn't exist, and being afraid of it, or calling it demonic, or something like that, and so forth. I'm getting off track, but you get my point, I think. I think it works very well to uh -huh. understand where you're coming from. of Erie Radio directly from iTunes or visit their website at www.erieradio.com. Are you ready to order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked, we answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says, Separating Signal from noise. It's just $14.95 plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To order the official Paracast t-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card or PayPal to place your order for the official Paracast t-shirt. This is Leslie Kane, and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information, and you are listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Dr. Richard Haynes. He is the chief scientist at NARCAP, and we've been exploring what they've learned and some of his ideas, philosophical and otherwise, about what might be causing unidentified aerial phenomena, which is their term for what they're studying. Now, as an organization, at what point does NARCAP feel that they can even begin to arrive at conclusions, or are they still pretty early in the data-gathering process? Yeah, that's a good question. So we, our country has the National Transportation Safety Board, the NTSB, that is charged by Congress with doing formal, high-level investigations of accidents and incidents in aviation and transportation in general. Well, they are charged to do the very best work possible to prevent further incidents of these kind of things happening where people are injured or killed. NARCAP would love to have that level of, of capability and staffing and money, budget, if you will, to be able to focus just on this one aspect called UAP that we believe are very significant. We feel that we should be represented somehow because we're professionals, 
we're not a bunch of amateurs, represented in that approach that the NTSB is using, maybe be like an NGO, you know, a non-governmental organization that could provide uh, professional advice and consulting and even field research. Uh, that's one of our objectives, if possible. Does that answer your question? It does, but I wanted to ask you, since you kind of raised another one, how are you funded now, or is it just a bunch of scientists working to try to do this work on their own coin, as they say? Uh, well, we are a um, 501c3 corporation, which means that we can accept tax-deductible donations, but largely it is still a volunteer organization, I have to admit. And that's been a source of some frustration because as anybody who's done it knows, uh, you can only go so far. You can't buy a magnetometer <laughs> on donations, at least not very many donations. So much of our work has been self-funded. and uh, We're just getting a lot done, and I think we're making some real progress uh, even on that basis. We're very proud of what we've achieved. Now, Dr. Haynes, based on the fact that you professionally, your background um is one, well, looking at your advanced degrees in experimental psychology, I was hoping we could get, I know we've talked about a lot of sort of hard data aspects of this, and you've been kind enough to, to indulge us in going a little off tangent in talking about some of the philosophical aspects of this. Uh, I was wondering if you could indulge us just a little bit more as far as the psychological aspects of this, because it, you know, it's it's very hard sometimes to take all of this and boil it down to nuts and bolts. There are times when it feels like that almost limits us too much. And I realize we're throwing sort of some of these questions are sort of these big amorphous kind of things, but when you've talked to pilots about this, how do you feel they process their experiences? Uh, you know, because I, I know in my own life, my experiences have definitely had an impact on many times what I consider to be my overall mental and emotional health, and, and very often in ways that, that I don't think are necessarily positive. Given that on the, the professional level, you've engaged in trying to understand, certainly, for example, how humans interact with complex systems, and you can correct me if I'm wrong there, but based on your professional work, which we could probably do a whole other show about, when I, when I read that you've done habitability design for the space station, I think, well, now that's got to be very, it's really fascinating. Uh, Gene and I are both technologists, basically, and um, I've been involved for years doing all sorts of things like interface design for software. So, so these are areas, you know, you, you try to think about how the human mind approaches, for example, creativity, the process of creating something. If you had a, in, in a couple of sentences, try to describe how you feel these things have affected the psychological makeup of the pilots that have experienced them. Do pilots come away from this being a positive experience, negative experience, or is it more agnostic along those lines? Mm -hmm. Well, after you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of interviews and in-depth, in-cockpit reconstructions and flight simulator reconstructions and so forth, I come away with a generalization that these are normal, human, balanced Americans who are patriotic, who are family lovers, you know. Some of them are single, some of them are married, some of them have grown kids and so forth. 
that their lives, they've gotten on with it. They've processed the, the events by and large. Uh, they have not become neurotic. A couple of them stopped flying as a result of their encounters. Oh, really? They, yes, they just couldn't handle it. But that's very minor. It's such a low proportion that I, I hesitate to even mention it. Uh, the great majority uh, deal with it, process it, the word, uh, very well. And I think that speaks very well for them as human beings. Um, I'm very proud of them. It's a wonderful, wonderful group to work with, I must say. Now, there are some cases where pilots have had... Uh, have have followed the book. You know, the airline might tell them, for instance, you've got to report to us immediately everything that happens of this nature. And they do, and they get into horrible trouble for doing that. Their sanity is questioned in some cases. They've got to start seeing a psychiatrist, you know, go out to counseling and so forth. Um, in other cases, they are, well, Captain Teruchi is an example, Japan Airlines. Uh, his airline... Um, prohibit him from flying. He was flying a desk for a long time after he reported his encounter over Alaska, um, and yet he was just following the rules. He was being a good pilot. You know what? You raised an interesting point there. Has this happened where a pilot reports a sighting of a strange object, and then they're given desk duty? They're no longer allowed to fly planes as a result of, as you say, following the rules. Is this just one case, or does it happen often? Well, it's not often, but it does happen. Uh, I couldn't put a number in. Well, certainly that would be one reason to discourage pilots from reporting, wouldn't it? Oh, absolutely, yes. And Ted discusses that, that dimension, if you will, in his report uh, on the sources of bias for underreporting. You see, it's a, it's a negative descending spiral that the more pressure that's put on a person not to report, well, the less they report, just on the average uh, flight crew across the country. And the less they report, the more management is justified in saying, hey, there's no problem, you see. That's a, that's a, a self-enforcing spiral that goes lower and lower. But it also becomes worse, Dr. Haynes, if the passengers of the plane saw something and the uh -huh. pilot hasn't reported it, it creates that discrepancy. That's right. That's right. You got that right. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Now... At this particular point in time, you guys have been around nearly 10 years in RCAP. Do you have some things you're hoping to accomplish? Do you have a five-year plan, a 10-year plan? Where do you expect to go? Well, one thing we really want to see happen is our name and contact information included in the FAA uh, manuals. There's the Airman Information Manual, AIM, and we ought to be listed in there as a place to contact with, for confidential reporting. That's what we do best. We guarantee 100% confidentiality so that the reporting pilots will not get in trouble. They won't lose their jobs, not on our basis anyway. Okay. But the second thing we would like to see is the reporting forms that pilots are required by law to fill out. Uh, let's say during a close encounter, a, a call a near miss, would be a addition of a single line item on that form where pilots have the opportunity to describe UAP. They're not, uh, they're not required in any way to report anything like that anymore, uh, right now at least. By adding that one line, even with an anonymous kind of a, a topic heading on that line, would encourage pilots to come forward and make reports, which they're not being record or re uh, encouraged to do now. Okay. Another possibility that we've been pushing 
is that airlines should implement in their recurrence training. Words uh, commercial pilot have to go back periodically and and refly training simulators, flight simulators to keep their proficiency up under certain situations, such as wind shear, for instance. What we're advocating is that airlines should add a module, a training segment into that recurrency training that involves an encounter with you know what. That's almost like the airline that admitting, essentially, in some sort of a public way, that these things are happening That's right. at the same time. Right, but, but it seems like that they'll never do that then, right? Based on their pulling back any sort of sense of disclosure on the point of the pilots, because what you're talking about is that this was something that happened more in the past than now. It's probably unlikely to think that they're going to be more uh, open with information. Well, unfortunately, I have to agree with you. Um, yeah. uh, just from a corporate PR standpoint, I, if I were running an airline, I'm not sure I'd want to publicize it either. You know, but it's going to take a groundswell of, of changing attitude here where the public um, applauds the airline for its honesty, you see. Yeah. Well, it seems like this was the problem with the O'Hare case, where United Airlines going through some very bad times at the time that this happened, uh, the last thing they wanted was to have any PR surrounding this topic, right? Well, that's my assessment, yes. Yeah. We yeah. have a few moments left, Dr. Haynes, and you can tell our listeners one more time. This is a chance that you do your pitch to tell people about NORCAP, how to get more information, and if they want to send a few dollars the way of the organization to help us work, here's the chance. Go ahead, please. Oh, okay. Uh, um, the National Aviation Reporting Center on Anomalous Phenomena, NORCAP, uh, is nationwide. It's a nonprofit organization of professionals. Um, who are banding together to increase uh, aviation safety in various ways. And one of the ways is, of course, through research. And so that's what my function is, to direct that program. Uh, I would hope that people who are interested would look up at our website, www.narcap.org, and find out more about us, and there you will find contact information um, and how you can help. Uh, if you'd like to submit articles or comment, we have that capability, a lot of data there, and so forth. I think it's a step in the right direction to tackle a practical national level concern, which is aviation safety. We're all concerned about that. But from the standpoint of UAP, uh, we haven't found anybody else who's taken that approach. Uh, and so we feel we are making a positive contribution here. We are more than willing to work with not only aviation professionals, but government organizations who are interest, truly interested uh, in burying their heads in the sand. And as you can probably tell by my presentation, we're a pretty straight shooting organization. So Absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity to be uh, on your show, gentlemen, and I wish you all the best. Dr. Haynes, we very much appreciate the information you provided. And when we list the show, by the way, we will have a link to narcap.org, www.narcap.org. And I want to emphasize that, again, that there's also a page entitled You Can Help, where they have a phone number. You can contact people about fundraising. And maybe a suggestion that you guys stick up a PayPal donation link, maybe, some way that people maybe they have a spare 5 or $10 
they That's can, an idea. That, and if you need any assistance on setting that up, you can contact David or myself, and we will do what we feel we can to help mm-hmm. you set that up, because I think it's an important point that if people... You know, if you're thinking, for example, ladies and gentlemen, of sending $10 the way of the PowerCast, we appreciate that. I understand that NARCAP consists of scientists, aviators, expert people who are trying to understand what unidentified aerial phenomena is all about to accumulate data in a scientific fashion. Now, the nonsense that surrounds the UFO field, the real serious stuff here, and right now, and I think David would agree with me, send your bucks to them. Absolutely. If you want to send it to us, that's cool. We'll take it. But send it to people like this organization, NARCAP. And again, it's www.narcap.org. It will be linked with Dr. Haynes' name on the Paracast site to make it easy for you to get there from wherever you are. Dr. Richard Haynes, thank you so much for joining us this week on the Paracast. Thank you, David, and thank you, Gene. Thank you, Dr. Haynes. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.